0: Section 17 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K Hand. Thomas Jefferson, Part 2. But it was by his unofficial labors at this time that Jefferson benefited his country more than by his official acts as negotiator. These labors were great and took up most of his time. They included sending information to his countrymen of all that was going on of importance in the realms of science, art, and literature, giving advice and assistance to the unfortunate, sending seeds and machines and new inventions to America, and acquainting himself with all improvements in agriculture, especially in the culture of rice. He traveled extensively in most of the countries of Europe, always with his eyes open to learn something useful one result of which was to deepen his disgust with the institutions of the Old World and increase his admiration for those of his own country. He doubtless attached too much importance to the political systems of Europe in producing the degradation he saw among the various peoples, even as he too impulsively considered republicanism the source of all good in governments. He was on pleasant terms with a different diplomatic corps and lived in the easy and profuse style of Virginia planters giving few grand dinners, but dispensing a generous hospitality to French visitors as well as to all Americans who called upon him. The letters he wrote were innumerable. No public man ever left to posterity more of the results of his observations and thought. Interesting himself in everything and everybody, and freely communicating his ideas in correspondence, he had a wide influence while living, and his ideas have been suggestive and fruitful to thoughtful students of the public interest ever since. After five years' residence in France, he returned home, a much more intelligent and cultivated man than when he arrived in Paris, which never lost its charm for him, in spite of its political convulsions, its irreligion, and its social inequality. He came back to Monticello as on a visit only, expecting to return to his post. But another destiny awaited him. Washington required his services in the First Cabinet as Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, a part for which his diplomatic career had admirably qualified him as well as his general abilities. The seat of government was then at New York and Jefferson occupied a house in Maiden Lane where Hamilton, as Secretary of the Treasury, lived in Pine Street. Jefferson's salary was $3,500 a year, 500 more than Hamilton received, but it is not to be supposed that either lived on his official income. The population of the city was then but 35,000, and only a few families, at the head of which were the Schuylers, the Livingstons, the Van Rensselaers, and the Morrises, constituted what is called society, which was much more ceremonious than at the present day, and more exclusive. All the great officers of the new government were aristocratic and stately, even inaccessible, except Jefferson, and many of the fashions, titles, and ceremonies of European courts were kept up. The factotum of the president signed himself as Steward of the Household, while Washington himself rode to church in a coach and six attended by outriders. Great functionaries were called Most Honorable, and their wives were addressed as Lady So-and-So. The most confidential ministers dared not assume any familiarity with the president. He was not addressed as Mr. President, but as Your Excellency, and even that title was too democratic for the taste of John Adams, who thought it lowered the president to the level of a governor of Bermuda, or one of his own secretaries. Only four men constituted the Cabinet of Washington, but the public business was inconsiderable compared with these times, and Jefferson in the State Department had only four clerks under him. Still, he was a very busy man, as many questions of importance had to be settled. We are in a wilderness without a footstep to guide us," wrote Madison to Jefferson in reference to Congress. And it applied to the executive government as well as to Congress. Neither the executive nor the legislature had precedents to guide them, and everything was in a tangle. There was scarcely any money in the country, and still less, in the Treasury. Even the President, one of the richest men in the country, if not the richest, had to raise money at 2% a month, to enable his steward of the household to pay his grocer's bills, and all the members of his cabinet had to sacrifice their private interests in accepting their new positions. The head of a department was not so great a personage in reality as at the present day, and yet very few men were capable of performing the duties of their position. Probably, Alexander Hamilton was the only man in the country then fit to be Secretary of the Treasury, and Jefferson the only man available to be Secretary of State, since Adams was in the vice presidential chair. And these two men Washington was obliged to retain, in spite of their mutual hostilities and total disagreement on almost every subject presented to their consideration. In nothing were the patience, the patriotism, and the magnanimity of Washington more apparent than in his treatment of these two rival statesmen, perpetually striving to conciliate them, hopelessly attempting to mix oil with water, the one an aristocratic financier who saw national prosperity in banks and money and central power the other a democratic land owner who looked upon agriculture as the highest interest and universal suffrage as the only safe policy for a republic between the theories of these rivals Washington had to steer the ship of state originating nothing himself yet singularly clear in his judgment both of men and measures he was governed equally by the advice of both since they worked in different spheres and were not rivals in the sense that Burr and Jefferson were that is leaders in the same party and competitors for the same office In regard to the labors and services of Jefferson in the Department of State, he was cautious, conciliatory, and peace-loving, neither a fanatic nor an enthusiast, enlightened by twenty-five years of discussion on the principles of law and government, and a practical businessman. It required all his tact to prevent entangling foreign alliances and getting into hot water with both France and England, for neither power had any respect for the new commonwealth and each seemed inclined to take all the advantage it could of American weakness and inexperience. They were constantly guilty of such offenses as the impressment of our seamen, paper blockades, haughty dictation, and insolent treatment of our envoys, having an eye all the while to the future dismemberment of the States, and the rich slices of territory both were likely to acquire in the South and West. At that time there was no Navy, no Army to speak of, and no surplus revenue. There were irritating questions to be settled with England about boundaries and the occupation of military posts which she had agreed to evacuate there were british intrigues with indians in the interior to make disturbance while on the borders the fur trade and fisheries were unsettled there were debts to be paid from american to english merchants which were disputed and treaties to be made involving all the unsettled principles of political economy as insoluble apparently today as they were one hundred years ago There were unjust restrictions on American commerce of the most irritating nature, for American vessels were still excluded from West India ports, and only such products were admitted as could not be dispensed with. Such articles as whale oil, salt fish, salt provisions, and grain itself could not be exported to any town in England. In France a new spirit seemed to animate the government against America, a disposition to seize everything that was possible and to dictate in matters with which they had no concern even in relation to our own internal affairs, as in the instructions furnished to Jeanette, whose unscrupulous audacity and meddling intrigues at last exhausted the patience of both Washington and Jefferson. But the most important thing that happened, of historical interest, when Jefferson was Secretary of State, was the origination of the Republican, or Democratic Party as it was afterwards called, in opposition to the Federal Party, led by Hamilton, Jay, and Governor Morris. Of this new party Jefferson was the undisputed founder and life. He fancied he saw in the measure of the federal leaders a systematic attempt to assimilate American institutions, as far as possible, to those of Great Britain. He looked upon Hamilton as a royalist at heart, and upon his bank, with other financial arrangements, only as an engine to control votes and centralize power at the expense of the states. He entered into the arena of controversial politics, wrote for the newspapers, appealed to democratic passions, and set in motion a network of party machinery to influence the votes of the people, foreseeing the future triumph of his principles. He pulled political wires with as much adroitness and effect as Van Buren in aftertimes so that the statesman was lost in the politician. But Jefferson was not a vulgar, a selfish, or a scheming politician. Though ambitious for the presidency, in his heart he preferred the quiet of Monticello to any elevation to which the people could raise him. What he desired supremely was the triumph of democratic principles, since he saw in this triumph the welfare of the country, the interests of the many against the ascendancy of the few, the real reign of the people, instead of the reign of an aristocracy of money or birth. Believing that the people knew or ought to know their own interests, he was willing to entrust them with unlimited political power. The Federalist leaders saw in the ascendancy of the people the triumphs of demagogy, the ignoring of experience in government, the reign of passions, unenlightened measures leading to financial and political ruin, and would therefore restrict the privilege, or, as some would say, the right of suffrage. In such a war of principles the most bitter animosities were to be expected, and there has never been a time when such fierce party contests disgraced the country as at the close of Washington's administration if we accept the animosities attending the election of General Jackson. It was really a war between aristocrats and plebeians, as in ancient Rome, and, as at Rome, every succeeding battle ended in the increase of power among the democracy. At the close of the administration of President Adams, the federal party was destroyed forever. It is useless to speculate as to which party was in the right. Probably both parties were right in some things and wrong in others. The worth of a strong government in critical times has been proved by the wholesome action of such an autocrat as Jackson in the nullification troubles with South Carolina and the successful maintenance of the Union by the power-assuming Congress during the rebellion, while Jackson's autocracy in general and the centralizing tendency of congressional legislation since 1865 are instances of the complications likely to arise from too strong a government in a country where the people are the final source of power. The value of universal suffrage, the logical result of Jefferson's view of government, is still an open question, especially in cities. But whether good or bad in its ultimate results, the victory was decisive on the part of the democracy, whose main principle of popular sovereignty has become the established law of the land and will probably continue to rule as long as American institutions last. The questions since opened have been in regard to slavery, in ways which Jefferson never dreamed of, the comparative power of the North and South, matters of finance, tariffs, and internal improvements, involving the deepest problems of political economy, education, and constitutional law. And as time moves on, new questions will arise to puzzle the profoundest intellects, but the question of the ascendancy of the people is settled beyond all human calculations. And it is in this matter especially that Jefferson left his mark on the institutions of his country. As the champion of democracy rather than as the champion of the abstract rights of man which he and patrick henry and samuel adams had asserted in opposition to the tyranny of great britain in her treatment of the colonies and here he went beyond puritan new england which sought the ascendancy of the wisest and the best when the aristocracy of intellect and virtue should bear sway instead of the unenlightened masses Historians talk about the aristocracy of the southern planters, but this was an offshoot of the aristocracy of feudalism, the dominion of favored classes over the enslaved, the poor, and the miserable. New England aristocracy was the rule of the wisest and the best, extending to the remotest hamlets, in which people discuss the elemental principles of Magna Carta and the liberties of Saxon yeomen. This was the aristocracy which had for its defenders such men as the Adamses, the Shermans, and the Langdons—something new in the history of governments and empires, which was really subverted by the doctrines of Rousseau and the leaders of the French Revolution, whom Jefferson admired and followed. Jefferson, however, practically believed in the aristocracy of mind and gave his preference to men of learning and refinement, rather than to men of wealth and rank. He was a Democrat only in the recognition of the people as the source of future political power, and hence in the belief of the ultimate triumph of the Democratic Party, which it was his work to organize and lead. Foreseeing how dangerous the triumph of a vulgar and ignorant mob could be, he tried to provide for educating the people on the same principle that we would today educate the colored race. The great hobby of his life was education. He thus spent the best part of his latter years in founding and directing the University of Virginia, including a plan for popular education as well to all schemes of education, he lent a willing ear, but it was the last thing which aristocratic southern planters desired—the elevation of the poor whites or political equality. Though a planter, Jefferson was more in sympathy with New England ideas as to the intellectual improvement of the people and its relation to universal suffrage than with the southern gentlemen with whom he associated. Hamilton did not so much care for the education of the people as he did for the ascendancy of those who were already educated, especially if wealthy property, in his eyes, had great consideration, as with all the influential magnates of the North. Jefferson thought more of men than of their surroundings, and thus became popular with ordinary people in a lower stratum of social life. Hamilton was popular only with the rich, the learned, and the powerful, and stood no chance in the race with Jefferson for popular favor, wherever universal suffrage was established, any more than did John Adams, whose ideas concerning social distinctions and the ascendancy of learning and virtue in matters of government were decidedly aristocratic. It is hard to say whether Jefferson or Hamilton was the wiser in his political theories, nor is it certain which was the more astute and far-reaching in his calculations as to the future ascendancy of political parties. Down to the Civil War, the Democrats had things largely their own way. Since then, the Republican Party, lineal descendant of the Federals through the Whigs, have borne sway until within very recent years, when there has developed a strong reaction against the centralizing tendency compacted by the rallying of the people about the government to resist disunion in 1860-65. to Jefferson became vice president on the final retirement of Washington to private life in 1797 when Adams was made president. The vice presidency was a position of dignity rather than of power and not so much desired by ambitious men as the office of governor in a great state. What took place of importance in the political field during the presidency of Adams has already been treated. As Vice President, Jefferson had but little to do officially, but he was as busy as ever with his pen and in pulling political wires, especially in doing all he could to obstruct legislation along the lines laid down by the federal leaders. Of course, like other leaders, he was aiming at the presidency, and I think he was the only man in our history who ever reached this high office by persistent personal efforts to secure it. Burr failed, in spite of his great abilities, as well as Hamilton, Calhoun, Clay, Benton, Webster, Douglas, Seward, and Blaine. All the later presidents have been men who, when nominated as candidates for the presidency, were comparatively unknown and unimportant in the eyes of the nation, selected not for abilities but as the most available candidates, although some of them proved to be men of greater talent and fitness than was generally supposed. The people accepted them, but did not select them, any more than Saul and David were chosen by the people of Israel. Political leaders selected them for party purposes and rather because they were unknown than because they were known, while greater men, who had the national eye upon them for services and abilities, had created too many enemies, secret or open, for successful competition. An English member of parliament of transcendent talent, if superior to all other members for eloquence, wisdom, and tact, is pretty certain of climbing to the premiership like Canning, Peel, Disraeli, and Gladstone. Probably no American for a long time to come, can reasonably hope to reach the presidency because he has ambitiously and persistently labored for it, whatever may be his merits or services. In a country of wide extent like the United States, where the representatives of the people and the states in Congress are the real rulers, perhaps this is well. But even Jefferson did not inordinately seek or desire the presidency. The office quite as earnestly sought him as the most popular man in the country who had proved himself to be a man of great abilities in the various positions he had previously filled and as honest as he was, patriotic. He had few personal enemies. His enemies were the leaders of the Federal Party, if we accept Aaron Burr, in whose honesty few believed. The lies which the bitter and hostile Federalists told about Jefferson were lost on the great majority of the people who believed in him. Jefferson was inaugurated as President in 1801 and selected an able cabinet with his friend and disciple James Madison as Secretary of State and Albert Gallatin, an experienced financier, a Swiss by birth, as Secretary of the Treasury. He at once made important changes in all matters of etiquette and forms, introducing greater simplicity, abolishing levies, titles, and state ceremonials, and making himself more accessible to the people. His hospitality was greater than that of any preceding or succeeding president. He lived in the White House more like a Virginian planter than a great public functionary, wearing plain clothes and receiving foreign ministers without the usual formalities, much to their chagrin. He also prevailed on Congress to reduce the Army and Navy, retaining a force only large enough to maintain law and order. He set the example of removing important officers hostile to his administration, although he did not make sweeping changes, as did General Jackson afterward, on the avowed ground that spoils belonged to victors, thus increasing the bitterness of partisanship. The most important act of Jefferson's administration was the purchase of Louisiana from France for $15 million. Bonaparte had intended, after that great territory had been ceded to him by Spain, to make a military colony at New Orleans, and thus control the Mississippi and its branches, but, as he wanted money, and as his ambition centered in European conquests, he was easily won over by the American diplomatists to forego the possession of that territory, the importance of which he probably did not appreciate, and it became a part of the United States. James Monroe and Robert Livingston closed the bargain with the First Consul and were promptly sustained by the administration, although they had really exceeded their instructions. Bonaparte is reported to have said of this transaction, This accession of territory strengthens forever the power of the United States. I have given to England a maritime rival that will sooner or later humble her pride. By this purchase, which Jefferson had much at heart, the United States secured not only millions of square miles of territory, but the control of the Gulf of Mexico. This fortunate acquisition prevented those entangling disputes and hostilities which would have taken place whether Spain or France owned Louisiana. Doubtless, Jefferson laid himself open to censure from the Federalists for assuming unconstitutional powers in this purchase, but the greatness of the service more than balanced the irregularity, and the ridicule and abuse from his political enemies fell harmless. No one can question that his prompt action, whether technically legal or illegal, was both wise and necessary. It practically gave to the United States the undisputed possession of the vast territory between the Mississippi and the Rocky Mountains. Moreover, the President's enlightened encouragement of the explorations of Lewis and Clark's expedition across the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Ocean led to the ultimate occupancy of California and the West Coast itself. The next event of national interest connected with the administration of Jefferson in his long term of eight years, for he was re-elected president and began his second term in 1805, was the enterprise of Aaron Burr with a view of establishing a monarchy in Mexico. It was fortunately defeated, and the disappointed and ambitious politician narrowly escaped being convicted of high treason. He was saved only by the unaccountable intrigues of the Federalists at a time of intense party warfare. Jefferson would have punished this unscrupulous intriguer if he could, but Burr was defended by a counsel of extraordinary ability, chiefly Federalist lawyers, at the head of whom was Luther Martin of Maryland, probably the best lawyer in the country, notwithstanding his dissipated habits. Martin was one of those few drinking men whose brains are not clouded by liquor. He could argue a case after having drunk brandy enough to intoxicate any ordinary man and be the brighter for it. Burr also brought to bear the resources of his own extraordinary intellect, by way of quiet suggestions to his counsel. This remarkable man was born at Newark, New Jersey in 1756 and was the son of Reverend Aaron Burr, President of Princeton College. He was a grandson of the celebrated Jonathan Edwards, the most original and powerful metaphysical intellect known to the religious history of this country, who confirmed Calvinism as the creed of New England Puritans. The young Burr, on the death of his father and grandfather, inherited what was then considered as a fortune, and was graduated at Princeton in 1772, with no enviable reputation, being noted for his idleness and habits bordering on dissipation. He was a handsome and sprightly young man of sixteen, a favorite with women of all ages. He made choice of the profession of law and commenced the study under Tappan Reeve of Elizabeth Town. After the Battle of Bunker Hill, he entered the army at Boston, but, tired of inactivity, joined Arnold's expedition to Quebec, where he distinguished himself by his bravery. Ill health compelled him to leave the army after four years' service, the youngest colonel in the army. He was no admirer of Washington, regarding him as a farmer and Indian fighter rather than a soldier. He favored the cabal against him, headed by Gates and Conway. Washington, while ready to acknowledge Burr's military abilities, always distrusted him And withheld from him the rank of brigadier. On leaving the army at the age of 23, Burr resumed his studies of the law and was admitted to the Albany Bar after brief preparation. Conscious of his talents, he soon after settled in New York and enjoyed a lucrative practice, the rival of Alexander Hamilton being employed with him on all important cases. He had married in 1782 the widow of an English officer, a Mrs. Provost, a lady older than he, with uncommon accomplishments. In 1784, he was chosen a member of the New York legislature and was on intimate terms with the Clintons, the Livingstons, the Van Rensselaers, and the Schuylers. In 1789, he was made Attorney General of the state during the administration of Governor George Clinton. His popularity was as great as were his talents, and in 1791 he was elected to the United States Senate over General Philip Schuyler and became the leader of the Republican Party, with increasing popularity and influence. In 1796 he was a presidential candidate, and in 1800, being again a candidate for the presidency, he received 73 votes in the House of Representatives, the same number that were cast for Jefferson. He would doubtless have been elected president but for the efforts of Hamilton, who threw his influence in favor of Jefferson, Democrat as he was, as the safer man of the two. Burr never forgave his rival at the bar for this, and henceforward the deepest enmity rankled in his soul for the great Federalist leader. End of section 17